Mr. Kemp, he called me yesterday morning and they have a little circumstance so they won't be here this morning. So, but uh, let me open us up in a word of prayer. Father, we are so, so thankful to be able to come together and just take a deep breath and gather together with the saints and commune with one another as we commune with you in that sweet fellowship and opening of your truth. And Father, we don't need to look far to realize there are many brothers and sisters in Christ at this very moment who is and have found themselves in the midst of a trial unlike anything they could have ever imagined. Literally, Christ professed or death and Lord, we are so thankful to be reminded that we have such peace and such comfort and such convenience. And I pray that we would never take it for granted, that we would lift up the church in our prayers, and that we would just be people of your truth who look to their Lord in reverence and peace and joy no matter what the circumstance might be so Lord we just lift all these things up to you and we do that in your ever precious name our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ amen so I was uh, thankfully to either to you the beneficiaries or the victims one of the two have been in a uh, you okay Okay, I'll hold this a little closer. Is that better? Okay. Um, just in a, a, a long study, and I'm starting a long study, actually, of the eschatology of Jonathan Edwards, um, which is fascinating. If you've got a long, cold winter ahead of you, it's about that long of a read. You need one? Yeah. Um, but but uh, reading... Reading that eschatology, it's fascinating because arguably Jonathan Edwards was one of the most brilliant theological minds we will ever know. Um, just a brilliant, meticulous, detailed man, and I would commend uh, reading his eschatology um, because what you learn, and you find this in much of the, the, the post-millennial views that are out there with, again, incredibly gifted men of God who teach the truth and yet see so much of the scripture very different than one who would hold a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial view. And what, what I've come to realize and is the purpose of this revisit and study and what this study this morning will, will be a piece of is that it in many ways comes down to two or three really key things in how your hermeneutic, your interpretation of Scripture, um, uh, is applied. So I want to give you a, a little bit of that insight and, and along the way. But the Lord refers to this generation 
at the moment of his cross, literally, the week of his cross, everybody's asking about the kingdom. He's dying. He's going to the cross. He's made that clear. It's beginning to sink in. And yet, still, everybody, but what about the kingdom? What about the kingdom, right? So he is constantly responding both to the disciples and everybody else about the kingdom. And he uses the phrase, this generation. And what I would encourage you to do in your studies, particularly when you're in that section of Scripture and up into the Olivet Discourse, find the antecedent of this generation. Find who he's talking about when he says this generation, because it is in that very place that the interpretations go, and it's like they're on a dial, where you can just kind of spin the dial, and it can go lots of different places. You're going to see a little bit of that in this parable that he tells right after he saves Zacchaeus, okay? So, a couple of things about this parable in Luke 19, 11 through 27, and I've copied it into our, our study. You'll notice that, that, and we'll talk about this a little bit and look at this, but when you look at three parables in particular that kind of fall right in line with this sequence of his discourse, uh, the parable of the minas, the talents, and the vineyard keepers, right, the tenants. There's something very strikingly consistent in all three of those parables. And they're somewhat captured in these three points about the focus of our study. The parable's purpose is to clarify the timing of the kingdom. That was the purpose of the response. It was the question, when is the kingdom coming? So the purpose of this parable primarily is to communicate the timing of the kingdom. Very important. In all three of these parables, he uses two distinct points in time. When the master goes away and when the master returns. And there is a long period of time in between both. All throughout all three of those parables. Very important. The other thing you see is the Lord's dominion is over all humanity. We kind of separate things between believers and unbelievers, and boy, those unbelievers are just doing what they do in hostility towards God. But Christ is absolutely sovereign over those people. And they are absolutely responsible and accountable to the commandments and the stewardship that they have been given over the course of their life over the course of humanity. And that is abundantly clear in all three of these parables. Which brings you to the third point. Stewardship is one of the prevailing applications of all three of these parables. What are we doing with this time? That's the question the Lord is, is raising and answering. What are you doing with your time? So I want to just unpack that, and we're only going to be able to touch on this one parable, but I would encourage you to go look at this whole section and see these patterns. But I'm just going to read first the whole parable for you. Let these words just kind of fall on you as the Lord walks through them. So in verse 11, we read, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. 
because he was near to Jerusalem. Right? Because he was near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. That was the prevailing thought all throughout his disciples, all the way out through Israel. And what struck me as I read that and the consistency of that through this entire discourse of this week of the Lord's life is how dangerous is it that we play loose and fast with eschatology? Because just listen to the mindset of these people. Yeah, we hear you going to the cross. We, We know it's eminent. You've said it three times now, but what about the kingdom? And do, you, do we see that in the church society today, how out of balance we can be with eschatology and totally lose sight of the Messiah, which is precisely what happened in the time that Jesus was speaking and teaching? And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, he said, therefore, right? Here comes the timing part. A noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then what? Return. See the two points in time? He's going off to a far place, and then he's going to return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. And here comes the stewardship. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying we do not want this man to reign over us and there you have the fundamental issue in the heart of humanity we don't want anybody to reign over us apart from the intervening work of God we want to rule our life the way we want to live it And it's right here, and it'll go all the way to crucifying their very creator, if not intervened, right? Stunning that that's where he begins. Verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So not only is there a return, but there is a judgment around our accountability to the stewardship of everything we've been entrusted with. Why? We know why. They love him because it's his to begin with. And he simply deposited it with you whether that be a testimony, (laughs) whether that be wealth, whether that be, you name it, he's entrusted it to us and we will give an answer to it. We inherently know these things, but it's fascinating that this was the focus of our Lord as he was headed right to the cross. Verse 16, the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to them, well done, good servant. This is where the three parables begin to take a very similar pattern, right? Because you have been faithful in very little, look what he says, you shall have authority over ten cities. 
And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Now that conjures up a fascinating picture to the people that are listening to this parable, isn't it? I mean, literally. You're thinking, what's he saying? My faithfulness is going to give me some degree of responsibility and accountability over a geography in some future? Right? Verse 20. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. I didn't do anything with it, for I was afraid of you. And think about this in our witnessing. Every person that we know that does not know Christ knows the law. And that law, whether they show it or not, is a weight inside of them that frankly needs to be explained. Because the law is our tutor to bring us to Christ. Why would anyone be afraid of Christ? If you watched his life unfold, why would you be afraid of him? Because the law has been convicting you. And if you couple that with, I want to reign over myself, you are going to flee from every light you can get near. Right? For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. It's Jesus telling the parable. And when you read the account of the Lord's judgment upon those who trampled on his blood, severe would be a severe understatement, would it not? Because he ends every one of these parables the same way. You take what you did not deposit. Fascinating. So who did deposit it? God. And reap what you did not sow, is his fruit. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. And there you see the dominion of God over everyone and the accountability for that stewardship that every one of them has. We're, we're deeply accountable to our life in Christ. The unbeliever is deeply accountable to their life outside of Christ because everything that they have has been deposited to them by God. <laughs> you know that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Verse 23, when, why then did you not put the money in the bank. And at my coming, it was, it was assumed in Jesus' parable that he's coming back at this point of accountability, judgment. <laughs> and at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. You didn't even do the minimum you could have done with it. 
Matter of fact, we, we know from our own former lives and the lives of many loved ones and many that we, that not only did we do the minimum, not do the minimum, but we spent it all on ourselves. much like what John David is teaching about Israel right now. Their houses were beautiful while the Lord's house was falling into rubble. Using the material he provided them to build his house. Verse 24, and he said to those who, under, who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. Verse 26, and here comes the fearful passage. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, you think that might be part of the point of this parable? Have you ever witnessed hard to a loved one? They just refuse to be reigned over. They refuse to submit their very own creator who died to snatch them from the fire. They refuse. It's a very helpful point to ponder in your evangelism. Bring them here, and here's what's consistent in all three of these parables, and slaughter them. That is the severe man that he's talking about. Because the time is near and the end is this, slaughter. There's a number of things that, that come to mind. And when you look at these other two parables, which are going to be the tenants, you're going to find that the, the talents and the tenants and the minus, that in all three of them, he returns and judgment comes. He returns and judgment comes. Going back to verse 11, you see the clarification of the timing of the kingdom that it would not come immediately, that the nobleman would go away, that the vine dresser would go away, right? A couple of passages to call to mind when you look at verse 12. Matthew 28:18. just piece these together a little bit. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And in effect, he's going to receive it, right? His ascension. The Lord says, quoting from Psalm 110, 1 and 2, The Lord says to my Lord, sit, he's received the kingdom, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And depending on how you see the times we're in, that is precisely what is happening. Regardless of how crazy everything looks, feels, appears. 
God allows man to reach his highest point, and then wham, right? Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. Nebuchadnezzar rises. Nebuchadnezzar ends up in a pasture for seven years, and then he comes back, right? That is the sovereign Lord putting his enemies under his foot. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. He's sovereign in all of that. And then look at Acts 3.21. And bear in mind that the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, what did he spend time teaching these men? About the kingdom. Forty days. Could you imagine? <laughs> forty days. I just, forty days with our Lord in his resurrected body before he ascends to heaven, teaching about the kingdom. And here they are, just a few uh, Days, weeks later, and you see in Acts 3.21, whom heaven must receive, saying of the Lord, until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And when you begin to look through those promises made to Israel in particular, and the literal nature as David is moving us through them. And I have, there's a whole book, Scott knows it, it's called He Will Reign. And it is an exegesis from Genesis to Revelation of those passages. And it is startling, isn't it? The clarity and the literal nature of the promises. And if they are to be allegorized away, then God just wasted an enormous amount of scripture and the Lord wasted an enormous amount of the last week of his life to teach about something that's coming that really isn't, particularly as it relates to Israel. How can that be? Particularly when God says in the Old Testament, if a prophet makes a prophecy and it does not come through, what does that mean to that prophet? He's disqualified and death, right? It's an interesting way to think about those prophecies that you see about Israel and how literal they are. Verse 13 through 15 helps us see the dominion the Lord has over all the citizens, saved and unsaved, the responsibility that we have. And look at Romans 13, 11. Besides this, you know the time, says Paul, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Interesting picture of sanctification, isn't it? He's just looking right from the moment you were saved right out to your glorification. And he sees that whole period in between. Sanctification. That kind of wobbly ups and downs path that has a trajectory that is climbing because the Holy Spirit is going to make sure of it because he who began a good work in you 
is going to what? Finish it. Verse 14, we see these days will be marked by those who will hate the king. And you can't help but think of 2 Timothy 3 and 4. And if you just look at the language, it is most certainly true of the time when Paul was writing these. And it has most certainly been true of the time in the entire period of the church. And it is most certainly true right now, right? But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self instead of allowing the Lord to reign over them. Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, which was worthy of death in an adult child. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Boy, does that not describe last summer? When you had cities burning down in what was called civil disobedience? <laughs> Just, and it's not anything new. That's the point. It, this is the way it's going to be until that time of the restoration. But look at this about the, the time as it grows. Having the appearance of godliness. What's that? That is the placebo of false religion without Christ, which permeates this world, does it not? Think about how many people in this, on this planet are living under some form of religious system that they actually believe makes them better, helps them. It's religion without Christ. It's religion without Christ. having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, the Holy Spirit, in us. Avoid such people, says Paul. And we see a little bit more as he unpacks this in 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. It's the people, it's the congregations who no longer want to hear the truth about sin and Christ that heap up for themselves teachers who will tell them anything they want to hear in order to maintain their popularity and their place of position. How rampant is that today? And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into the myth, which is one of the ways that the end time religion is a unified global religion, and how in the world are you going to unify this world in religion? You have to gut it of truth, of objective biblical truth. It has to be gutted. Verse 15 gives us the view of the timing when he returns. You will find judgment. And what you find here is just the continuing generational history of humanity that we see in Romans 1. Who was Paul writing to in Romans 1? 
everybody that would read it. And he was describing the entirety of the human history. And he says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why? We don't want him to reign over us who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Always watch out for the suppression of the truth because it's always a mark. Regardless of the words it's shrouded in of someone who is seeking self and persuasion and therefore suppressing the truth. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for not being stewards over everything we've been entrusted with. Right? Our children, the truth, our families, the hostile, hateful, non-Christian that the Lord brings into our life through work or through some interaction, right? We're, we're accountable and to be a good steward over that. And look at the judgment in 21. For although they knew God, there was no question about that in God's view and in Paul's view, here it comes. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their, and here comes hell on earth. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And what that reveals is the reason the world isn't far worse than it is right now is because God is actively restraining what is in the heart of man. Read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That's exactly what gets let go. What gets let go is the sin that is in the heart of man that is currently restrained by the Word of God, the social, moral law of God, and we can see the big fractures in our own society where the law is being ripped apart. 2 Thessalonians 2 says, mystery of what? Lawlessness is already at work, according to Paul. 2,000 years ago. It's just building towards this day of accountability. So their foolish hearts were darkened, and listen to this. It's surreal how this describes our society today. And I'm sure if you read this 1,000 years ago, it would be every bit as surreal because it is a passage that is timeless because it's describing the wicked heart of humanity and all the trappings that it produces, that Jesus is going to come back and judge when the time has been decreed. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and here comes idolatry of every kind. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things, and everything you can think of that I can create in my heart to be God so that I can actually be God because I tell God what to do. Because I refuse to let him reign over me. Right back to the parables the Lord's teaching, right before he goes to the cross. 
What you see in verse 20 through 26 in this judgment, Jesus communicates in that last week of his life in such amazing terms. Look at this passage in John 15, 2 and Matthew 24. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, there's the stewardship. He takes away. He is sovereign over the infidel, the hostile hater of God, and he will judge them for what God has entrusted them with. And can you think about some of the people you know who have been entrusted with so much? Wisdom, intelligence, wealth, family. It's fearful. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So praise the Lord when he clips you hard because it hurts. When he brings a trial in your life, he's pruning you with the tender hands of the Father, so that you may bear more fruit. Isn't that a sweet thought? When you're going through your trials, when your children are astray, when your own life and battles with sin seems to come and go in ways that just bring you to your face. He's pruning us so that we might be more fruitful and find ourselves enjoying Ephesians 2.10, right? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which who prepared for him? He did. So that we might walk right into him. He prunes. Matthew 24, 45 through 51. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Now there's a statement. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, right? That slippery life, the person who professes and it has a nice dose of religion on Sunday, maybe a little Wednesday night Bible study, but the rest of their life, this is the way I grew up in Roman Catholicism. Long as I got that zap on Sunday morning, I was good for the week. That is religion without Christ to a T. But if the wicked server says to himself, my master is delayed and beats, begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know. But it is future, is it not? and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. Now think about that. He, he takes this one and he puts them with the hypocrites because he's deceived by his false religion. That is a fearful, this is the Lord, Lord. But look at all the things I did for you. 
And the very first time they understood they were never part of the Lord's body was when he says, depart from me. I never knew you. They never had a true and genuine relationship with Christ. So in this, he takes them and he drops them right in with the people whom they were always with all along. And if it weren't for their religious view of themselves. And he says, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I want to just kind of look at one thing before we kind of close down. It's Romans chapter 11, verse 11. And it is Paul's treatment of these three chapters that just so beautifully unpack what about Israel? <laughs> what about Israel? And I go here because the vast majority of people who see the end times see no hope for Israel. They saw the destruction. They're done. They had their chance and they're done, right? It ended in 70 AD. It comes back to the importance of understanding who the you is in this generation and how all that then unpacks. But look at Romans 11, verse 11, and Paul says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Is it finished? Is it done? Is it over? He's asking. By no means emphatically. Rather, through their trespasses, um, you ever, ever kind of been stung by someone saying, well, you're just second fiddle? Well, here's the biblical second fiddle. If you can get your head wrapped around it, maybe I'm off base when I say this, but by no means, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. It was all theirs, and in God's decree, because of their trespass, it came to us. Now look what he continues to say. So as to make Israel jealous. You ever think about what that means? What that should mean? I think what it should mean is the church should be so glorious in her relationship with her Lord, with Jesus Christ, the Messiah whom they rejected, with the God whom they treasure, but don't know they're separated from because they reject Christ. And the church is to make her, Israel, jealous. Why would they be jealous? Because of the beauty of our relationship with our Lord. And the question becomes, are we? <laughs> That's the challenge, I think, for the church. Are we? And then, arguably one of the most difficult passages to swallow when you're trying to rationalize the idea that there's no hope for Israel, especially after you've gone through all the passages in that great big book that talk about literal promise after promise after promise, right? That you read verse 25 of Romans 11, lest you be wise in your own sight. So there's the warning. Don't be arrogant. Don't get all haughty. 
Don't get all lifted up because salvation has come to you because they stumbled. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And until the Lord returns, and you could argue that'll be at the point of the rapture or the second coming, and not until then will the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. And here's again another text that if you don't have a high view of the sovereignty of God, you, you just can't fathom how this passage can come about. Because what this says is God has decreed precisely the fullness of the Gentiles. And that arguably there's going to be one last one, somebody he's witnessing to, that comes to salvation and something's going to happen. Right? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. When you read Isaiah 53, do you read it? Understanding that the writer is somewhere out in the future when Israel is saved and they're looking back and they say, the one whom we have pierced. And that's what pierces the heart of Israel. They will realize in their future repentance and the national salvation of the true Israel, that it was the Messiah whom they look back on and now look at high and lifted up and realize that they pierced him. It's all past tense. They're looking backwards. Read Isaiah 53 if you've never seen that. It's a beautiful testimony to the wonder of God's word that he could write through Isaiah, about a point far in our future when Israel will be redeemed and look back and see the one whom they have pierced. And it's all bound up in this period that we're in and this promise of his return and everything he will bring to pass, right? So that's our study for now. Um, and depending on um, how things unfold, the next time I think we can really zoom in on the texts that talk about this generation and really trace that through. And it brings to mind another book that I would commend to you in addition to He Will Reign Forever, which is One Perfect Life, which is a beautiful harmony of all four Gospels. And it allows you to just read them through. I'd done it been so blessed the last seven winters just read it through it's got the MacArthur study bible in the book when you buy it it's a wonderful resource and it'll allow you to read a beautiful harmony because there is so much that you miss when you're reading Matthew but not Luke Mark and John or John and not the other three this brings them all together in a very 
biblical specific scriptural flow and just allows you to see particularly this season of the Lord's life in a way that is extraordinary right so I would really commend that to you as you study the gospel so okay thank you yes sir